Well, did the preacher forget which Sunday it was? No, he didn't. He didn't. Uh, I know that uh, every Easter is uh, a good opportunity for us as a church to highlight the, the really the central element of the Christian faith. And we get to do that to an increased number of people who attend church on Resurrection Sunday like this. And we do know that Easter, Resurrection Sunday, is fundamentally about the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth from the dead, showing him to be God's son, the fullest revelation of God to us. And we do, as Christians, we actually believe that Jesus was executed, he physically died, and he was buried for three days and was supernaturally, physically resurrected from the dead by God, the Father. Now, over the years, in my time alongside our congregation, I have taken the time to examine the details of the accounts given to us in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke and John and what they explicitly teach about the resurrection of Jesus. And also through the years, we have looked at key accounts about the resurrection, like in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we have spent a number of Resurrection Sundays unpacking that marvelous chapter. And this year, we're taking just a little bit of a different track. We are continuing in our ongoing study of the book of 1 Thessalonians that we began some time ago, and we're actually not ignoring the resurrection of Jesus. We're simply considering whether his resurrection is really essential to the way that we live our life as Christians, or is it really essential into what makes for a legitimate church ministry among us? In fact, we could say that the resurrection, while not explicitly mentioned by the term, is actually all over this passage. And it's even alluded to in these verses. Did you hear the little Easter egg of resurrection hidden in this text? My son didn't. He's like, Dad... Don't we normally preach an Easter sermon on Easter? So as Brett was reading the text, I looked over and I said, did you hear it? And he went, no. (laughs) He's probably not alone in the crowd, but it's there. I also thought it would be helpful to take advantage of the number of people who are visiting And there are a number of you who are not just visiting today because of Resurrection Sunday. Many of you have been visiting for some time, kind of evaluating our church. Some of you are actually looking for a church. And I wanted to continue talking about what it is that we should look for when we're evaluating whether a church is actually spiritually legitimate or not. How do you know that what we're doing this morning, which is actually what we tend to do every Lord's Day morning, has any legitimate spiritual effectiveness to it? Well, we've been looking at the first 12 verses of chapter 2 in 1 Thessalonians for a few weeks, and it is a description of what a spiritually legitimate church ministry looks like. If we looked back into the culture of the ancient world where this church was founded and into the particular moments of which this church was founded by the Apostle Paul, we would see that society at that time was calling some who had claimed to follow Christ, was calling some to question whether or not what they had followed at the teaching of the Apostle Paul was actually legitimate because the culture was not affirming it in any way. In fact, the culture was standing against it. And the more that society breathes threats against the gospel of Christ, it causes people to wonder, is this really what we should be emphasizing? Shouldn't we do something that's a little bit more palatable, perhaps, to the world and what they want and what they'll tolerate. And Paul is writing them to say, don't give up on this. Don't quit. You know what kind of spiritual fruit this created. You know what kind of ministry we brought to you, and you know how you responded to it. So don't forget that. In fact, he emphasizes that word, as you know, as you know. It's all through here. You know that when I came to you and preached this gospel, you know what kind of transforming effect it had on you. You know what kind of people we were, what kind of ministry we presented to you, 
and in front of you. You know it. You personally know it. Don't run from it. So we have arranged these verses, verses 1 to 12, around four different elements to consider when evaluating the spiritual legitimacy and even the spiritual effectiveness of a gospel church ministry and even its ministers, and particularly its ministers, because these verses, verses 1 to 12, actually emphasize what Paul was like, what his ministry was like when he preached to them. And when we get into verse 13, it turns the table a little bit and it'll start looking at how they responded to that ministry to show that they had a spiritually legitimate response. But how do we know and how did they know particularly that this ministry Paul had emphasized was a true ministry, that it bore true spiritual fruit? How did they know that? What should we look for? Well, these verses tell us we should evaluate the presentation of those who deliver the word of God. That's in verses 1 to 4. You also have to evaluate the motivations of those who preach God's word. That's in verses 5 to 8, which we considered just a few weeks ago. And this morning, we're going to finish it out by looking at these last two elements. These last two elements of what we should consider in evaluating the spiritual legitimacy of a church ministry. Evaluate the lifestyle of those who teach the word of God because as the leaders go, so go the church. Evaluate the lifestyle of those who teach the word of God and then last, evaluate the application from those who bring God's word. Those are the two things we're going to look at. The lifestyle of those who teach and the application. You say, well, this sounds a lot like your ministry to us. Well, it is a lot of that. Because again, as, as so goes the pulpit, so goes the church. So what are you looking for? Well, let's focus on the first. Evaluate the lifestyle of those who teach God's word. It's in verses 9 to 10. How does a leader, and not just the preacher in the pulpit, but all of the elders. You know, our church is led by seven elders, all, all of whom are shepherds of the church. I'm not the only shepherd here. We have seven shepherds in our church. You could legitimately call them the, the pastors of our church. They're shepherding the lives of the flock here. They teach the word of God and they shepherd the souls of our, our flock. So what do you look for when you evaluate the lifestyle of someone who teaches the word of God? Well, if I, I take Paul's cues here in verses 9 and 10... There's two aspects of a teacher's lifestyle to examine so that you know that this this man who stands before you, who serves you, who shepherds your soul is a spiritually legitimate minister or leader. First thing, examine his work ethic. Examine his work, work ethic. Look at verse nine. Do you see what Paul emphasizes about his ministry? For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. So his ministry is proclaiming the gospel of God, and how did he do it? With labor and hardship, working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you. He's talking about his own work ethic here. Well, how hard did he work? Did he work hard? That, that would be a good quality to examine of a leader. Does he work hard? Now, I know that there are some, because I've shepherded a few, particularly when I was in the motherland, the great nation of Texas, Remember that place you visited there? All hail the Republic. No, I'm, I'm kidding. <laughs> when I was back serving in Texas, I remember there was a man converted in our church and uh, he, he cut meat for a living. He was a butcher and uh, he worked hard. He worked long hours and it was very tiring. And I remember when he came to faith in Christ and uh, and I would, I would visit with him. We actually met every single week for discipleship and, and he just started growing marvelously in the Lord. Uh, and I, there would be times when I would, I would have one of those weak moments and say, you know, I'm really tired from the work this week. And I would say it in front of him. That was always a mistake. He's like, you're tired? What'd you do all week? Study? Because <laughs> to him, if you didn't produce it with your hands, it really, wasn't really work. 
I mean, this man, and this man worked too. So I thought it was enjoyable that one Saturday when I was losing my voice and I knew about, and I gave him some time. I, it was probably about six o'clock in the evening when I called him on Saturday. And I said, hey, Ken, uh, he could barely hear me and understand. I said, uh, I can't, I'm not going to be able to preach. Could you, could you handle it? He's like, you're calling me at six o'clock tonight on Saturday night? And he said, sure, I can, I can put some things together, some things that we've been talking about in Bible study together. He said, I'll just present some of that. I said, that'll be wonderful. I just can't, there's no way I'm going to be able to talk. And I'll never forget that Monday that we met. He's like, don't ever do that to me again. I don't feel like I've ever worked that hard. And I stopped him and I said, could you just say that again? Could you say that one more time? I'd like to hear that again. That was hard work for him to think about because he realized what he was doing was handling the word of God in front of all these people. He didn't want to make a mistake and mislead people. And so he's really working hard in the text and that he wasn't used to that kind of thing. And he was just worn out by the time he finished. Because it can be hard work, but we need to ask. Does a leader work hard? Now, if you think carefully about why Paul brings this up, it's actually connected to verse 8. And in verse 8, he had reminded the Thessalonians about how much he loved them. How much affection he had for them. You remember verse 8? Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but our own lives because you'd become so dear to us. Well, what showed them how dear they had become to him? What showed them how much affection he had for them? He worked hard. You know that I had this kind of affection because, that's the first word of verse 9, because for you recall, you know in your mind, you have specific examples. This is not just the word to, to remember like you could recall up something in your mind. It is to intentionally recall specific examples of how you saw this. You know, brethren, you recall, you remember our labor and our hardship, he chooses these words very carefully. The word labor is the word in Greek, kapon. It's used by Paul 11 of the 18 times you'll find it in the New Testament. And it's related to the idea of difficulty. It's the kind of, of difficulty that wears you out. It, it's like going to the gym and working on the weights. You're pushing against the resistance to the point that it actually wears you out. This is the kind of resistance that brings exhaustion, it's labor, striving, there's trouble. It's related to the verb kapiao, which means to become weary or tired from working. It's the idea behind those phrases we commonly use. I'm beat, I'm worn out, I've worked myself to the bone. That's, that's the idea behind this word, labor. I'm worn out. I wore myself out in this gospel labor. He even refers to it here as hardship. Again, that does emphasize some difficulty. It's a difficulty that drains you, an effort where you put all that you have into something because it's so challenging and so difficult, and it takes so much of you. These two words together, labor and hardship, are used three times by Paul. Once here... Once in another reference in 2 Thessalonians, we'll consider in a few moments, but another in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty seven that I thought was really instructive. If you want to know what Paul thinks of in terms of hardship and labor, labor and hardship, 2 Corinthians eleven twenty seven gives you an idea. He said, I've been in labor and hardship. How do you know? Through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. I'll preach the gospel to you even if I lose sleep over it. Even if there's hunger and thirst and cold and exposure, this is worth it to me. To sacrifice myself, even my physical well-being for you. That's hard work. It's not just labor and hardship, but did you also notice he describes his work ethic with the next phrase? Working night and day. Now this doesn't mean that he worked all day and all night 24-7. That's not what he means by this. But he's working during the daytime and he's working during the nighttime. 
And what this likely refers to in detail is that Paul, when he came to Thessalonica, as he did in other places like in Corinth, he would usually take up another job. For example, in 1 Corinthians 4.12, he mentions to the Corinthian church that he was working with his own hands while in Corinth. And we, we know what that work was because in Acts chapter 18, in verse 2, it mentions him joining Aquila and his wife Priscilla while in Corinth in their trade of making tents. Likely, he was a worker with leather that they would sell in the agora or the marketplace in the typical city that would be used to construct housing or tents. But we need to be careful with that. It's not just that he was bivocational. That's really not the idea. He did not see himself as bivocational, by the way. And I've worked as a bivocational pastor before, but that's not what he's referring to here. He's not saying, yeah, for a little while I was bivocational until the church could afford to bring me on full time. No, This last phrase in verse 9, proclaiming to you the gospel of God, is describing the work that he was doing as he labored and worked through hardship, nighttime and daytime. It was in this preaching of the gospel. You say, well, well, he wasn't preaching while he was working, was he? Probably. It's probably the idea. Oh yeah, I I came to you and I I went into the Agora and I opened up shop, self-employed. I opened up shop and I would invite people to come and and as I'm working, we're talking. As I'm working with the leather, we're talking about discipleship in Jesus Christ. We're talking through the details of the gospel. We're rehearsing what theology is like. We're talking about how to pray, how to overcome sin, how to deal with the, the, the issues of your heart when a loved one dies, how to overcome sin that's weighing you down like sexual sin, things that he's going to talk about and remind them that he did talk about with them when he was with them later in this book. He was preaching all the time, wherever he went, even while he was working. This is very interesting. Work was not a distraction from the problems of life for him which is what happens to many of us, isn't it? We'll just work ourselves so we don't have to think about home or we'll work ourselves to death so that we don't have to think about issues on our heart. Or there's that idea of workaholism. You think, well, Paul, this doesn't sound psychologically well. I think his soul was fine. This isn't workaholism. Workaholism is so giving yourself to a labor for wrong reasons without God at the center point, in the wrong ways. That's not Paul. He knew what his priorities were. There was a gospel proclaiming focus to Paul's exhausting efforts, and he wasn't just merely busy with activities. He worked himself with tireless efforts in a focused way, using every opportunity for gospel extension. The gospel defined even his work ethic. But why did he work that hard? Why? The text tells us. You see it there. Look at the end of verse 9. So as not to be a burden to any of you as we proclaim the gospel of God. So as not to be a burden to any of you. So that I'm not a weight on your spiritual shoulders. In other words, he means here, I did not want my personal needs to be a weight around your neck that would cause you to stop thinking about the weight of your own spiritual need. I didn't want you to think more about my personal needs than your gospel need. That's why he would work in the agora in the marketplace. And I think that's probably a turning point in the Apostle Paul's life if, if he didn't want them thinking about his personal needs more than their gospel needs. As soon as in their mind and in the life of that young church, as soon as they changed and the church said that our gospel need is so great that we need more of your gospel ministry so we're going to pay to liberate you from working in the Agora so you give more to it because we have such great need, that's likely when he would take a paycheck. Because he wasn't against taking pay from a church. But he wasn't going to allow anything in his life to distract 
the people he was preaching to, especially in the infancy days of the church, from them seeing their need. You see, it wasn't very, it wasn't uncommon for professional philosophers of the ancient world, like in the first century, to make a living off of the disciples who followed their philosophy. And those ancient philosophers, you could, you could put people like teachers, politicians, media personalities, people who make their living through teaching and communicating ideas. Teachers don't just teach just to get across the idea. The more that they teach, they want to be paid for that. Politicians like to be, let's just don't even go on that right now. But that was common in the ancient world. If, if your trade was teaching people philosophy and ideas, there was an idea that then the people who followed that ought to support that financially so that they can keep doing it more and more. And Paul says, I don't want you to think that I'm just one of those guys. I'm not just peddling the word of God here. He didn't preach for the paycheck in the initial days of his ministry. He wouldn't take any remuneration he didn't want it to overcome the, the message. In fact, in 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 8 and 9, he says this, We did not eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with labor and hardship. There he uses that word, that phrase again, labor and hardship. We kept working night and day in the nighttime and the daytime so that we would not be a burden to any of you, not because we don't have the right to this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you so that you would follow our example. If I say the gospel is worth your life's efforts, I'm going to show that to you by my life's efforts. I'll do everything I can to show you how valuable this is, especially in my work ethic. Now, what's really interesting is that according to Philippians 4.16, while Paul was in Thessalonica, Paul was receiving some remuneration from the Philippian church, which was just about 100 miles east of Thessalonica. But obviously, it wasn't enough to meet all of his needs because he had to keep working day and night. He did the same when he preached in Corinth, which was actually a very wealthy area. Philippi was a very poor area, and they valued the gospel so much that they said, we want to help Paul. When he goes to the next city, we want to help him. Now, if you remember the the story, he, he goes from Philippi, which was east. He goes west into Thessalonica. He gets run out of Thessalonica and heads south into Berea. Thessalonians who don't like him find out he went south. They chase him out of Berea also. And he goes further south into Athens, preaches the gospel there. Just a very few follow him. And then he jumps further south into Corinth, a very wealthy area, very powerful city in the ancient world, crossroads for trade in that area. And he did the same thing. He started working in the Agora with Aquila and Priscilla. And what's interesting is that in 2 Corinthians, he says this, did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you without charge in Corinth. I robbed other churches, you can hear his sarcasm. I robbed other churches by taking wages from them to serve you. And when I was present with you and was in need, I was not a burden to anyone. For when the brethren came from Macedonia, they fully supplied my need. Guess where Macedonia is? North. Thessalonica was the capital city of Macedonia. What we get is by the time he got to Corinth, it is likely that Philippi and Thessalonica started sending money to meet his needs so he could work full time in the city of Corinth. Which is fascinating. He said, they they fully supplied my need and in everything I kept myself from being a burden to you and I will continue to do so as the truth of Christ is in me. This boasting of mine will not be stopped in the regions of Achaia. Corinth was the capital of the southern region of Achaia. Paul would tell the Corinthians, "If if we sowed spiritual things among you, this is 1 Corinthians 9, if we sowed spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share the right over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we didn't use this right. We endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. It was gospel work that drove Paul's work ethic, not an amount of money. 
His personal needs never distracted him from serving their spiritual need. And when they saw that their spiritual need was so significant that they wanted Paul's gospel ministry unhindered, that's when they would give to him and he would take it. He had a strong work ethic. You need to look at those who are laboring. Do they give their life to this work? Do they give their life to this work? Do they give their life? Can you tell that they pour themselves into the ministry of the church? And it's not just the the hour on Sunday morning that they preach or a Sunday school class that they teach, but do they give their life's efforts into the discipling of the people of God in the flock? Do they work hard? But it's not just a work ethic that you need to look at. A lot of people can work hard. There's a second element here about his lifestyle that he focuses on. It's not just his work work ethic, but secondly, his ministry ethic. This is what we should also evaluate. Not just do they work hard, do they have a good, solid work ethic, but do they have a godly, God-centered ministry ethic? Because as he's working so hard to the point of exhaustion, what kind of work is it? See it in verse 10? You are witnesses. This would be your testimony about me. You know this personally. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you believers. Don't just look at how hard they work. How do they treat the people that they minister to? That's their ministry ethic. How do they treat the people they serve? Well, you could ask a couple of questions about this and some come to my mind just looking at the words that he used. I would want to know, does he serve people from a God-centered kind of devotion? So is his work ethic, is his devotion, is his life because he is so God-centered, he feels he is accountable to God? Where would I get that idea? Well, it's found in the word devoutly. You know how devoutly we serve. This is the only time in the New Testament this word is actually used. It's a simple term that means that he lives his life with reference to God. When we talk about someone being devout, don't you think of something kind of in religious terms? It has that that connotation to it of something religious, they're devout. When we call someone devout, we're implying that that person is devoted, religiously devoted. They're devoted to a religious kind of life. That's why they're devout. And this means that he saw his stewardship in working with people as a stewardship before God. The way he conducted himself with people was in a very devout way as if God were his object and his audience, not just the people. Nothing will drive more consistently a person to work in a godly way than thinking about every interaction they have as if they were representing God himself. I mean, think, if you think about this. Has anyone ever annoyed you today? <laughs> I mean, yes, people annoy us all the time. But I want you to think about when people annoy you, when you get frustrated with them. Aren't you getting frustrated because they're not, they're not doing things the way you think they ought to do them, right? Right? That, that can even happen in discipleship and spiritual ministry, can't it? Why do you keep going down that road? Why do you keep thinking that? Why do you keep doing that? Can't you get it together? Now, you know at your job, you behave better when the boss is around you, right? All the employees are different when the boss is standing beside them than when he's not. Unless they're really good employees and they're just very devout at their work, this is the idea. If you thought that God was standing right beside you in every interaction you had, even with people who just can't seem to get it together right now, but you thought, the way I talk to them now is how they need to see God, that's devout living, isn't it? Does that leader serve people from a God-centered devotion? Is that why he prays? 
because of his devotion to God? Is that why he counsels because of his devotion to God? Is that why he preaches? Is that the way he's preaching as if God is present and he's accountable to God and he knows that you need to hear from God, not just from him? That's devout. It's treating people as if they belong to God and they need God and they're growing in God and they need to see what godliness look, looks like. Not, not perfection because everybody's going to have their, their faults, but when the leader has a fault, do you see a God-centered response even to the fault? Another question you should ask when you, you think about this ministry ethic that he has is, does he serve people with God-defined integrity? A God-defined integrity? That, that's what I see in this word, uprightly. I behaved among you, not just in a devout way, a God-centered way, but uprightly. If, if devout talks about the atmosphere around my life of which I see all of ministry, uprightly talks about the actions. They're actually actions that are righteous. This word comes from the Greek word that's related to the word for righteousness, what is acceptable to God, what is right in front of God. So their actions actually comport with what God says is right. That means they live in integrity. The activities of this person's life, his speech, his interactions, his expenditures, his use of time, the way he treats people who are different from him, how he conducts his business, it's all above board. But it's not just above board according to acceptable accounting principles defined by some outside group. It's he lives this way because God defines what is right. That's what's right, righteous, upright. God defines it, not the culture of the church, not the history of the church, not tradition of the denomination, not people's expectations. God says this is right living. And you know that when I was with you, I lived in a way that showed you integrity before God. Does a leader serve people with God-defined integrity? Another question you could ask about his ministry ethic, does he serve people with a God-confirmed testimony? A God-confirmed testimony. Look at that last description here in verse 10. Devoutly, uprightly, and what? what's the next one? Blamelessly. Blamelessly. Meaning... Are there any accusations about this man that stick, that have substance to them so that he's discredited? That what he's saying in the pulpit is somehow discredited because he lives contrary to it. He says, no, I, I live blamelessly. There wasn't any accusation that could stick. And here's the, here's the challenge and the problem. No one's perfect, right? No one's perfect. Everybody's gonna make mistakes. Someone's gonna fail, we all make, make mistakes and, and failures. Every leader is going to have shortcomings. You could always find a leader. Look at all seven of our elders and let's just throw in everybody else. Let's throw in the deacons. Let's throw in the Sunday school teachers, the people who handle the word, the people who work as leaders in the flock. You could immediately, if you bring their names up, you could say, what's their weakness? You could probably think of one. So they all have them. So this doesn't mean perfection, Paul likely had some areas where he was weak and growing. Perfection's not the idea. What does he do with those perfections? Do you see him? Acknowledge them? It is a weakness. I need to work on that. God's word does talk about that. Pray for me in that. I need the grace of God to help me in this. I'm dependent on you to help me with that. You would look at a person like that and you would say, oh yeah, that's blameless. That's blameless. And by the way, there were people making accusations about Paul. <laughs> there were. He started a city riot in Thessalonica. <laughs> there was all kinds of accusations about him. But was, this, was his life a God-approved life? What were they rioting about? Paul isn't a righteous man. Paul isn't a godly man. Paul doesn't represent the gospel well. No, <laughs> he did all of that. And that's why they rioted. They didn't want a godly man. They didn't want a righteous life. There was all kinds of accusation, but his life rose above. And even when they examined him, he was a man who didn't take advantage of people. He lived a blameless life. And it, he lived above all the blame that was hurled at him, even if it was inaccurate. 
Now, who evaluates that? Who evaluates a man's ministry ethic? Well, look at the text again in verse 10. You are witnesses. You know this. And he lived a devout life, an upright life, and a blameless life toward you believers. Does the church confirm this man's behavior? Does the church affirm that he's devout, that he lives righteously, and that he's blameless? Does the congregation see that? By the way, the reason why the qualifications for an elder are given in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 is so that the congregation... The members of the church, those who believe in Jesus, can evaluate a man's life and call a man to serve as a leader because he models these things consistently. It is the responsibility of a congregation to do that kind of evaluating work. No leader ever lives beyond the flock he shepherds. He lives among them, with them evaluated by them according to biblical standards. He says, you believers know how I lived. You affirmed how I lived. The congregation does that. But can you really know what's in a man's heart? Can you ultimately know what's in a man's heart? You say, we can do our best, but we can't can't know. And that's why I think Paul appeals here in verse 10. He says, your witnesses... And what's the next phrase at the beginning of verse 10? So is God. This is how Paul lived. Open to the church, but he lived as if he knew his life would be evaluated by God. What he says, he's going to be held accountable for. By God. You want a leader who lives as if God is his judge. His heart is tender to God, sensitive to God, convicted by God. He's thrust into the scriptures constantly so that he comes face to face with God's word. That's the lifestyle you're looking for. You want a spiritually legitimate ministry? Look at his lifestyle. Does he work hard? And why why does he work that hard? And what's his ministry ethic? Well, let's finish with a fourth element to think about when evaluating the spiritual legitimacy and effectiveness of a church ministry. Last, evaluate the application from those who bring God's word, the application. What I mean by this is how does a leader use the ministry of the word when he interacts with people? How does he apply the ministry of the word to the challenges of lives in the flock? Is he more interested in the flock affirming him? Or what is his interest? Is he even interested in how the flock lives or that they just show up and give? What is he interested in? Is he willing to put his relationship with them on the line so that they will live according to truth? How do you apply the word? Well, let me give you a couple of aspects here as we round out this discussion of how a teacher applies the word when he teaches. Not just in the presentation of it, but in all that goes along with it afterward. So let me give you some thoughts on that. First, application of the word should be pointed. Should be pointed. We have seen throughout this section this phrase that you find in verse 11, just as you know. So this is something that they knew well. But in the Greek text of this verse, In the Greek text of this verse, the first words are not how we were exhorting. That's not the first words. In the Greek text, the very first words in this verse, just after that phrase, just as you know, is each one of you. Just as you know, each one of you. And he puts them up front in the sentence to emphasize this. Now, you know if you've been with us some time that Paul is fond of using the southern drawl to refer to the whole church. You know, the all y'all you the plural you form, like we used back in the motherland, all y'all. 
Now, he could have used that here to say, I'm just referring to all of you in general. In my preaching, I'm imploring all y'all. He doesn't do that. He's fond of doing that, but he doesn't do it here. And right up front in this verse, he actually says, each one of you, as if it's pointed. I'm imploring, I'm comforting, I'm pleading, I'm exhorting each one of you. Yes, as a church, as a whole, all of you, but when I'm preaching, I'm preaching to you specifically, pointedly, personally. You say, oh, is this an excuse for a preacher to have somebody in mind when he's making a point? You know, those preachers who did that, you feel like, you, I heard you talking, you know, with me earlier this week and somehow I ended up in your sermon. That's usually a problem if the preacher doesn't want to say the same thing to you personally. Right? That's where it becomes a problem. But friends, you do want your pastor to have you in mind when he's preaching the word. You want him to have your needs in mind. You want him to have the issues of your life in his mind because he wants you to live righteously before God. And he wants you to see how this text and your life actually run into each other. Now, we don't often do what Paul did like in Philippians and call out names during the sermon. <laughs> he did do that to two, two ladies in the church. You remember that? That would be an awkward sermon. An awkward moment. I guess it was effective. It made it into eternal scripture. <laughs> but it's pointed. Each one of you. It's not just pointed, but secondly, application of the word should be personal. It should be personal. Now, this is a little bit different. And again, if we could look at this together in the Greek text, we would see the next phrase after each one of you is the phrase, as a father would his own children. So each one of you, as a father would his own children. Now think about that. What's the idea that he's referring to here? Well, in the ancient world, the father was the individual charged most directly with the moral education of his children, not just the intellectual education of the, his children. He wasn't sitting there teaching them calculus. But he was in charge of the moral education of the family. Why? Because the family bears his name. And when they leave this house and they walk out into society, they bear the family name. And it's his responsibility to oversee how they represent that family name. Because as you interact with the children, you start thinking about the family. This must represent the family. And so the father gives very careful thought to how his children, each one of his children, is bearing the family name. That's the idea that Paul has here. We bear a, a family name in common. And I'm preaching to you, I'm urging, I'm... I'm preaching compassionately to you. I'm imploring you as a father who cares about the name of their family in society. That's the idea. Father takes this reputation thing seriously because he takes it personally. Represents us. So each one of you, and notice, it's, it's like we saw in in verse 7, when we talked about the, the nursing woman in the ancient world, like the wet nurse, the lactating mother who could be employed to help feed children. But verse 7 was referring to a, a woman who is nursing her own children. That's different than someone who's employed, Right? This is different. This is not just a father figure over people. This is a father who's imploring his own children, the ones that belong to him in his family. It's personal. Leaders apply the word in personal ways. They talk to you about your life and what's going on at your workplace and how you're thinking things through and how you're applying the word, reading the word, praying, Shepherding your family in specifics and in detail. And they may, they may recommend a book. Let's say, let's read this book. Or you need to be in this group of men because I think this group of men would meet you right where you are. 
It gets personal. It gets personal. Third, application of the word should be passionate. And I say passionate. As soon as I say passionate, you think, ah, passion means a preacher sweating through his suit coat on Sunday morning. You know he's really passionate. Or the volume of his voice reveals whether he's passionate. Or does he cry? That would be passionate. Well, it might be. It might be theatrics. Could be. How do I, where do I get this idea of passionate? I take it from the three words used to describe the way he preached. Exhorting, we were exhorting and encouraging and employing. Exhorting, encouraging, and imploring. Exhorting is a word that could either mean encourage or urge. Here I think it has the aspect of urge. That's how it's used most times in this book. It's the most typical way Paul would use it here. And some preaching needs to be that. It needs to be urging. It needs to be urging us about the seriousness of an issue. If hell is real, you urge people to consider Jesus because of the consequences. If the resurrection is true, you urge people to believe it because if you don't believe it, you have no hope for your life. So you urge. If you keep going down that road of sin, if you keep thinking that way, it's going to ruin you. You urge Some preaching is in the next word, encouraging. It's a word that has built into it sympathy and compassion, comforting. And sometimes there are seasons of our life where we are weighed down with sin and we are broken by it. And we've seen the consequences and we're underneath the consequences and they're devastating and they have us weeping. We show up here and it's hard to even look at someone in the face without breaking down. You're thinking, I, I need to hear, what, what does a merciful God do with someone like me? Because I've sinned again. I know I did it last week, and I said it this way last week, and I'm here again, and I'm broken over it. What do I do? Is God merciful? Is he, friends? He's merciful. Does he meet us where we are? He does. He hears us confess the same sin over and over and over and it's not like he gives a little bit more forgiveness he just keeps gushing out full complete total forgiveness and some preachings like that and is needed some is imploring that has the idea behind it of insistence or even pleading pleading Please, please don't do it again. Don't go down that road. Break off that relationship. It's actually tearing you down. Don't look at that anymore. Do you see the corrosion of your conscience? Please forgive. Let go of the sin and the the hard heart you have toward that person. I'm pleading with you. If you don't, the consequences are incalculable. Some preaching needs to be that way too. And Paul says, when I'm with you, it's all about where you are. And what do you need? It's it's what he's going to tell them to do later in this this book in chapter 5. Verse 14, we urge you, brethren admonish the unruly that means get on to them encourage the faint-hearted and help the weak and be patient with everyone that's what Paul did he showed him that that's how he applied the word but let's finish with a final way that the word should be applied in a spiritually legitimate church it's found in verse 12 Application of the word should be purposeful. Purposeful. It's in verse 12. This is actually what we're passionate about. This is the content of our exhorting 
and comforting and imploring. So that, this is what we want to see. So that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you. This is really what matters most in every church ministry. If a church doesn't labor for verse 12, you, don't, you do not need to come up with a purpose statement for your church. Do not try to imagine one, throw away all those business books that tell you, come up with some purpose statement. You already have one. We don't make up our purpose here. The purpose of everything we do in ministry is so that we will walk in a manner worthy of our God. That's it. So we do men's and women's Bible studies so that every single person will walk in a manner worthy of God. We have growth groups so that you will walk in a manner worthy of God. We meet on the Lord's Day so that you will walk in a manner worthy of God. We have equipping classes so you'll walk in a manner worthy of God. And the higher your view of God, that translates into the way you walk. And walk is the perfect word to use here, especially in the ancient world, because they didn't jet around. They didn't talk about how they roll. They talk about how they walk, because they walk everywhere, right? So we can say, this is how a Christian rolls. This is how we jet. We, we roll in a manner worthy of God. That's how we live. That's how we live, in a manner worthy of God. And you better have the right view of God, so that you'll live in the most worthy way. Walk in a manner that so values God that your life reflects that value. And notice what it says about this God. It is a God who, it's present tense here, who is calling you. It's as if you constantly throughout your life bear the calling mark of God. Salvation is not referred to, and this is the calling is just the synonym for salvation in Christ. Salvation is not just something you jump into one day and, and your, your salvation happened years ago. It is the calling that marks the whole of your life. It's as if God's call is on the totality of your life. He is calling you constantly. He's calling you. And to what is he calling you? This is beautiful. He's calling you into his own kingdom. What is that? What is the kingdom of God? Well, it is the rule of God through the gospel. That's a simple way to define the kingdom. It is the rule of God through the gospel. We can quibble about that later, you theologians out there. But that's essentially at its bare bones what it is. It's the rule of God through the gospel. So there's a very real aspect at which if you are saved right now and you're a true, genuine Christian, you are in the kingdom of God. You're under the rule of God through the gospel. In fact, a congregation is to display what the rule of God through the gospel looks like. That's why we do church discipline. That's why we live the way we do with each other because we're showing the world we're like a little little outpost of God's ultimate rule and we're supposed to be this embassy of heaven here on earth. We're showing the rule of God through the gospel. But I don't think he's referring to the present aspect of the kingdom of God here. The kingdom is not just the rule of God and the gospel in one sense that it's presently operating in. It's also, think of the kingdom of God when the king is here. When the king is on the earth and every nation, like we were reading in the opening psalm, every nation worships him. Every nation is under his rule. Every person is under his authority and he is ruling and reigning over all people. Has that happened yet? You say, well, he's in heaven, he's ruling over all things. But is he here physically ruling over all? Do they all acknowledge him? Has Putin bowed the knee yet? How about Biden or Trump? No, none of them have. They haven't. We're not there yet. 
And one of the reasons I think this is referring to the future kingdom is because of this last word. He's calling you into the kingdom and what? Glory. Now, the reason I think this is referring to the future kingdom is how this word glory is used elsewhere. So, for example, at the end of chapter 2, Paul will say this about the Thessalonians. Who is our hope, our joy, our crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ when? At his coming. And what's the last verse say in verse 20? For you in that scene, you at the coming of Jesus, you are our glory. What will display the fruit of a true ministry? The saints perfected in glory. Future. The kingdom that shows the glory of God in the fullest way. In fact, he will say at the end of chapter 3, he's praying in verse 12 that the Lord would cause these, this group of people to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people just as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness. It's another way to talk about glory. In holiness before our God and Father. When? At the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. That's glory. Well, what happens at the coming of Jesus with his saints? Well, keep turning the page. Go to chapter 4. You see verse 13? This is a part, it's not the whole, it's a part of all that's involved in the coming of the Lord. We do not, verse 13, want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep. That means those who've died, Christians who have died, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. And that's an expectation of the future. Now watch this. For if we believe that Jesus died and what? Easter. (laughs) Here it is. Did you see it? Ah, now you're so, did you see it, David? Hope you saw it. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Well, how's that going to happen? Because this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until when? The coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. If we believe Jesus died, we also are going to rise. If he died and he was raised, we will rise if we die. Then those who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. That's glory. It's an aspect of glory. You say, oh, but where's that work out and all the timing and this and that? We'll get there. A little bit later this year, we'll talk about that. What glory, kingdom and glory is God calling to you? The kind of kingdom where he rules in glory, where his people share in his glory, meaning they have a resurrected body. What all of this is saying is this ministry that Paul is given to is he gives himself to this ministry in such a way, in such a way, that we want you to live as if you are going to live in the coming kingdom and glory of God. Start living now in that and for that purpose. It's as if the resurrection of Jesus pulsates through everything we do, every motive we have, every intention we have. Everything is driven by this future hope that requires our future resurrected bodies, which is guaranteed by the actual resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you do not have a church that is so moved by that approach to ministry, you will not have a spiritually legitimate church. But if you do, and they 
plead and implore and urge and disciple and pour their life's efforts out as if God is watching every move and seeing every motive so that you end up being in the full glory of God at his coming. You'll have a church that's spiritually legitimate. You will. We want to be that kind of a church, don't we? Or we're wasting our time. And you don't need to show back up here another Sunday. And I wouldn't encourage you to. But if we really want to see each other in the kingdom and glory that God is calling us to in salvation, we serve each other in the most spiritually vibrant and substantive way with the word of God as we preach and invest it in people's lives. And you ought to be back every week for that. Let's pray together.